Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guests as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Hello, my friends. Welcome into episode number three of The Winsome Creationist. In this one, I've got for you Dr. Matt McLean. Um, Matt is a professor at the Masters University there in California, and this was a fascinating discussion that we had on basically dinosaurs and the Bible. And we're talking about some controversial subjects, feathered dinosaurs, what the flood has to do with things, how dinosaurs and the study of them can actually point you closer to God. Uh, and if that seems strange to you or, or weird to you, then listen to this interview. His passion comes through, and it is absolutely tremendous. Note that the video and the audio quality on this isn't quite what I'd like it to be. Um, this was an interview that was recorded last year before I got a lot of my new setup straightened out here. So uh, do forgive the video and the audio quality a little bit. The interviews going forward will be a lot better. Um, but I just wanted to make this available to you because I think our conversation was so great and so helpful. So thank you so much for your time. God bless you. And uh, without further ado, here's Dr. Matt McLean. All right. Thanks, Dr. McLean, and welcome on to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for those of you who do not know, Dr. Matt McLean is the Associate Professor of Biology and Geology at the Masters University out in California. And I'm sure many of you listening and watching have are familiar with the Masters University. That's, of course, John MacArthur's, part of John MacArthur's organization out there. So I know many of you are familiar with that. And I'm just thrilled about this conversation. So. Um, Dr. McLean is a paleontologist, and so it, paleontology is what they call an integrated field, which means he has to be really smart at geology and biology at the same time in order to get to say that he's a paleontologist. So we're super honored and thrilled to have him here and uh, just to discuss some of the things that, um, that, that we're talking about. Now, now today, we're really going to focus in on the issue of dinosaurs because dinosaurs are just one of those things. It's one of the easiest things to teach kids about creation because who doesn't love dinosaurs? I have myself a four-year-old who is obsessed with dinosaurs. And so, you know, it's crazy even in the children's, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start preaching and we haven't even started yet, but even in the children's programming and everything, they really start early teaching you about evolutionary ideas when it comes to this. So we want to have a really faithful approach as people who believe the Bible and take it at face value. We want to have a faithful approach to this issue. So that's why Dr. McLean's here, and we're excited to, um, you know, to talk through it. Is there anything you wanted to say just by way of opening up about your work? What, what got you so interested in dinosaurs? I was always interested in dinosaurs. It's, I, I think a lot of paleontologists are like that. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things like you're just, yeah, the same thing we were talking about, like we're a four-year-old kid, you know, you like them a lot. And some people go on and do other things afterwards and other people just kind of stick with that interest, you know? So that was very yeah. much the way I was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. You, but not every, it's almost one of those things like every kid wants to be an astronaut, but most don't end up doing it. So sure. when you grow up loving dinosaurs and then you basically get to study them and dig them up and all that cool stuff for the, you know, for the rest of your life, I imagine that's pretty cool. Now, where did you get your degrees? Yeah. 
if you don't match so, here. Uh, so I did a year at Word of Life Bible Institute, and then I went out to Cedarville University in Ohio to get my bachelor's in geology. And then I went on to get my PhD at Loma Linda University in Southern California. Oh, good. Good deal. So some listeners may not perceive that there is any sort of issue. In other words, they may even wonder, why are we talking about dinosaurs and as it relates to science from a biblical perspective? I've actually even talked to people when I've brought this up before, and they've basically said something to the effect of, oh, I really didn't even realize there was you know, yeah. a conflict at all between what the Bible says and between, you know, what scientists, what most scientists believe. I, I, I know how I would explain that difference, but from your perspective, could you kind of lay that distinction out for us and that conflict, so to speak? Yeah. So I'll try and frame it specifically in context of dinosaurs too. Yeah. So, you know, the issue that, that people run into there's kind of two big things, right? Dealing with the origin and existence of dinosaurs, what, you know, how they changed over time, and then the time that they were alive. Those are kind of the two things you run into. From the conventional standpoint, of course, and this is what you're going to see, like you talked about, you know, in, in children's programming and books and documentaries, websites, everything. So it's, you know, dinosaurs evolved millions of years ago from other kinds of reptiles. And over the course of their time here on earth, which was, you know, something like 165 million years or something like that. They, you know, they were evolving and changing to different forms. Most of them went extinct 66 million years ago. Some of them survived as birds. And, you know, that's kind of the story. And then humans wouldn't show up on the scene until, you know, moderate, like homo sapiens wouldn't be here until 300,000 or 200,000 years ago. So that's a really big gap. They love to say, for instance, you know, we are closer in time to a T-Rex than a T-Rex is to a Stegosaurus. That's one of the classic things you hear. And it's, you know, it's just kind of that mind-blowing, whoa, you know, that's really yeah, crazy. Yeah, that is kind of shocking to just hear that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, from a creationist standpoint, a, a young earth creationist standpoint, you know, our goal is to, we recognize that what God has revealed in his word is truth, right? And so... Yeah. Um, Certainly the Bible is not a science textbook or, you know, a math textbook or anything like that. But when it does touch on subjects, it's going to be true and what it says about them, right? So, sure. you know, God reveals to us how he made the world and we can use our reasoning to sort through about how long ago that was. And you're not going to come up with, you know, hundreds of millions of years or even a million years. You're going to come up with just a few thousand years. And yeah. so that's drastically different right there, right? And so in the biblical perspective, dinosaurs are animals, which would mean that they must have been created during the creation week, along with the other animals. Um, mm -hmm. They're land animals that are made on day six, and uh, most of them. And um, then that means that dinosaurs and humans must have lived at the same time. And so... Then you'd also say birds would have their own origin, right? They'd be made on day five, as well as other kinds of flying animals too. Um, and so those are completely different stories, right? So <laughs> one of the things you run into a lot with Christians who kind of just, you know, a little bit of interest in this or haven't really thought about it much, they're just like, oh, you can just find ways to like shove the time into the creation account, right? Or, you know, something like that. And it's always interesting when you sit down with those people that they don't understand 
many times what is going on. You know, like they just think, oh, if I just add in time, it's going to fix everything. But the issue isn't the time as much as it is the chronology, the order of events, right? So yeah, biblical account has birds of all or birds appearing. Sorry, on on day five, right? God makes them on day five, and land animals he makes on day six. Well, that's the complete opposite narrative of the evolutionary story, right? That birds would evolve from land animals. So it doesn't matter how much time you had there, you can't make those things mesh. They're just not going to work together. Sure. Yeah, you're right. And it, I have to say, when I, I guess first started getting into this, I did have that experience of, oh, if I'm taking seriously that, you know, dinosaurs are land animals and land animals were created on a different day and in a different order than what evolutionists say that they were, then, oh, I guess there is actually a problem here. It was kind of a shock to me. And I think it is yep. to a lot of people. And and then you have this whole, I have a buddy who, if you, you know, we've always been into Bible stuff and just nerding out on it a little bit together. But he was like, he was, he, the, his first time going to the Creation Museum, he was like, yeah, you know, it was pretty cool and all, but he's like, I just don't know about this whole Adam riding on a dinosaur thing. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, there's definitely some artistic license <laughs> that places like this are going to have to, are, are going to have to take. And it's probably a bit of a simplistic way to look at it. For example, it, you would know better than me, but I think some research has shown that the dinosaurs at least potentially lived in a completely different ecosystem pre-flood than than humans did. And perhaps we could talk about that a little bit, but, um, you know, in, in broad scope though, it's, yeah, we really think that the, that a T-Rex was running around, you know, or at least the ancestor of it, you know, what, however you want to look at that, something like a T-Rex was running around at the same time humans were. And it's what do we do with that? Where do we fit that in? And how can we, how can we stay faithful to both the Bible and what we see in the natural world. And I'd actually like to detour down that path a bit. I was in preparation for this. I was watching a few of the talks that you gave and you actually said on one of them, you took about a half hour, like basically setting the audience up with this huge evolutionary story. And then like, midway through the talk, it's, so what do we do about this? Well, it's, we trust God. And, and then the rest, the second half of the talk, thankfully you go in and start talking about some of the physical evidence. But, um, you know, I'm, I guess what, where I want to go with the question on that is where, I don't know, where are your thoughts on that? Do, yeah, we trust God, but is that really all? Like what, I mean, you do science now in service of the bigger picture of creation. What is that? You know, I don't know. Yeah. What is that? I don't know where I'm getting at. Hopefully you can respond here. No, no, I think I'm good. Some good thoughts there, some good questions. You know, the first thing I would say is, I've discovered that's almost kind of my modus operandi now, like for giving presentation. I was in Colorado giving a presentation for a church and the path came out afterwards and we're good friends. And he said, you know, yeah, it's interesting. You kind of dug a deep hole and then jumped right out of it. And he's like, that's what you do. And I was like, oh yeah, that is kind of what I do. Because the way I think about it, I think a lot of times one of the problems is we don't actually know what the problem is. Like we, we haven't taken the time to really sift through and figure so out like good. what's going on out here, you know? And, and that to me, that's one of the jobs of the creation scientists, right? What you're getting at is essentially 
you know, should we be able to see evidence of what the Bible says or not, right? Is this something that, that we're going to be able to find when we're doing scientific studies? But the reality is the Bible is true, right? So what God said in the word of God about the history of the earth is absolutely true. And we will, we will be able to see evidence that, that occurred in various ways. There are some things that we may not be able to see evidence of. So for, I'll give you an interesting example of this. So one, one of the books I loved growing up on when I was a kid are these like, where they do like the history of the world, but they do it as like an atlas. And so as you flip through, like you're seeing like different maps of the world at different times and trying to understand kind of what's going on there. And I always thought that was a cool way to learn history. And so I was trying to find one of those for my kids. And I found one, I wasn't happy with it. I found another one, I was happier with it. But that one was really interesting because they didn't talk about anything related to the Bible the whole way through. And then they have one page. I think it comes in like after the Roman Empire. And they're like, Bible stories, that's literally what they call it. And it's everything from Noah all the way to Paul. Okay, just crammed on the one. <laughs> and I'm like, first of all, this is weird, right? So I'm looking at, they've got little spots around the map where they're showing different things and little facts and things. And there's a clear, like, really clear bias being pushed here. You know, like, the resurrection is ever mentioned. It's like, your whole point is to talk about Christianity here and you're not even, but anyway, one of them show Paul's conversion experience. Okay, that's one of the things that pops up on there on the road to Damascus. And they say, you know, historians have been, or, or something like archaeologists have been unable to verify whether this really happened. And it's like, I'm sorry, what exactly are you expecting what? to see in terms of archaeological evidence, right? Are you expecting like yeah. the hoof prints from the donkey or you know, what, what do you? Right. Right. So yeah. Sometimes we have this I thinking that actually comes from kind of like a, a modernistic science is the queen of everything kind of perspective yeah. where we expect that, oh, we the only way things can be we can be certain things are true is if we can demonstrate them scientifically. But that's a very modern, very one sided way to view the world, right? Science is not the ticket to all truth. That's not how it works. Science can reveal certain things to us given the correct perspective, right? And understanding. And so, you know, when you think about the creation week, for instance, there may be things in the creation week that we cannot verify scientifically. They were miraculous, right? That's Are we going to be able to see evidence for how long it took for God to make, you know, the original plants? I doubt it, right? It's not something we can do. But when it comes to something like Noah's flood, where this is happening in over a year, you know, during the history of the world, it's got to be leaving geological evidence in some way, right? That is something we can study, right? And so, you know, what we should be doing as creation scientists is saying, okay, here's what the word of God says. This is what I would expect to be out there. These are the kinds of things I can study as a result, right? And then go out there and make discoveries. And so kind of building a creation model up is what you want to do. and sometimes um, you're going to realize, oops, I was on the wrong path. I read the text incorrectly, or I jumped to a conclusion from the text that wasn't necessarily warranted. Sometimes you're going to realize you're right on, right? And, but my point is, you know, when I do things like we were talking about in that one talk, I want to show people first and foremost, um, just because something is true doesn't mean you're automatically, like it's going to be obvious, right? When you look at nature. 
it, it may require a lot of work. It may require a lot of time. It may require investigations that no one's conducted yet. That, that's how science works, right? That's what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So trying to encourage people to be patient and trust in the Lord as they, as, and then, and help them to see the value of science, especially creation scientific research, and want to further that in some way or another. Yeah, yes. That's really huge because, well, everything that you said right there, there's actually so much I could respond here with, but the word that jumped out to me was just honesty, was just being honest with it. There's no, it does, actually, you know, this has been, unfortunately, a problem in the past, some regards with creationists is, you know, sometimes we're just going to, you know, make something up so as to not make the Bible look bad. Well, you know, we don't want to do that. What we want to do is say, okay, well, this is an area where maybe we need more work. So we don't know. And I just, you know, one of my pet peeves is when an evolutionist attacks me because I don't have an answer to a particular thing. When I could just turn around and say, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have an answer to. It, it's just one of those things where people don't understand really how science works. That's one of the greatest things I got out of Todd Wood's books and his blogs and things is just that most people really don't understand how the process of science works. Everybody's looking for a silver bullet one way or another. And that's just not how, I mean, it's just, it's more like a tug of war, just back and forth trying, you know, wrestling with data and evidence and sifting through Mm -hmm. um, interpretations. And that, you know, one of the things you said was interesting. I wonder how you'd respond to the accusation that you're not doing real science since Mm -hmm. you believe the Bible. It's kind of like, you know, you're starting with this assumption, so to say, that the biblical worldview is true. And some people would say, well, that means you can't do real science because a real scientist is going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Now, I know how I might respond to that, but I, I wonder if you've ever been accused of that. Do you have a response to that? Yeah, no, it's definitely, that's a very common accusation put out against creationist scientists. And I think it, it really reveals a misunderstanding about what science is and how it works and a confusion of like philosophy and worldview issues with science, right? So mm-hmm. science isn't a, science in its actual form, what it should be, it's not a, um, a philosophical position or religious statement ultimately, right? Like it's more methodology than anything else. It's here are the ways we learn about nature, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Now, what gets associated with that are different philosophical ideas, which are important for being able to do those methodologies, right? Someone who's, well, you know, you've got you to follow science wherever it leads. Okay, well, let's really think about that for a minute. Let's talk about brain chemistry, right? So, you know, if you're really following the science where it leads, we don't see anything going on in our brains that's not just a chemical or electrical reaction, right? At the end of the day. Right. So if that's the case, then how can we really be certain that decision-making is a real thing, right? That we actually have the ability as conscious beings to, you know, follow conclusions and make all these things. And you have a lot of scientists and philosophers and things who will say, no, there is no free will. There's no ability for... It's an illusion, right? And some people would even go so far as when they look at quantum stuff to actually go so far as to say like cause and effect or illusions. And there's some weird stuff going on there. 
So if you're following that evidence truly, then you're really stuck at a place where you have to say, okay, well, I'm going to say that my decisions are not real. It's just very complicated stimulus responses, right? Well, then how can I be certain that what I've actually discovered is true, right? If I don't have rational thought, if I don't have conscious rational thought. So the thing is like anything you look at, you have assumptions built into it, right? I assume that when I'm doing science that I can comprehend what I'm doing, right? And that my experience means something. When you're doing science, you assume the physical world is real, that you are real, that other people are real, right? So, you know, it's silly to say, oh, you have assumptions, therefore you can't do science. No, absolutely not. Yeah, it it sounds to me like people are being inconsistent. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. It sounds to me like people are being inconsistent. So they, they get mad at you or castigate you or whatever for not following the science where it leads in this one area. But they may not be following the science where it leads in another area themselves is what it kind of sounds like. Yeah, and I think it comes down to they've built up this origins narrative, right, that in a philosophical way of dealing with scientific issues. And then they're saying every scientist must follow these things. But that's not really how science operates. You look through the history of science, and you have tons of people just doing their own thing all the time. And going against the establishment and being mavericks and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, and the reality is I am doing science. So at the end of the day, you can't really say, oh, you can't do science because here I am, right? I'm I'm going on discovering things. I'm writing publications on them. We're getting those published. You know, we're studying things, science. So, you know, really, if you're wanting to say certain people can't do science because of these things, that's really more of a religious or philosophical statement than it is a statement of how science works and what science is up to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good response. So it confuses the difference between the methodology of science and the philosophical, you know, essentially worldview that you have that, you know, and I would argue that the Christian worldview is the only one that even justifies things like actually doing scientific discovery, et cetera. But that's a, that's something for another podcast. So yeah, we're supposed um, to talk about dinosaurs or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. It's just uh, the whole broad scope of this is so, that was so good. fun. So. All right. So let's talk a little more about dinosaurs. So I okay. want to know, I want to know you, what you perceive to be the biggest challenge. The bit, you know, what's the, you know, I, I know I don't want to fall into the silver bullet kind of thinking here, but what is the piece of evidence that, that you think most would cause a problem or at least need some serious thought from creationists right now? So. The most difficult thing related to dinosaurs for creation research, I would say right now, is an issue with order in the fossil record. Mm. So you can look at certain groups of dinosaurs and track their appearances and, you know, throughout the fossil record. And it can look like you've got change going on and you can make trajectories and track those trajectories. I'm actually working on a project right now with some other creationists and we're finding some dinosaur groups don't do that and some of them do really well, right? And so you've got that going on combined with like, how do you keep these communities together, right? You're not, it's not like you'll find any random dinosaur with any other random dinosaur. Like you can make predictions, you know, if I'm digging in Campanian sediments in, you know, 
North America, I can predict for you what types of dinosaurs we'll find. Maybe not the exact species, but the families for sure. And I can predict which ones we won't find. That means something, right? And so, you know, when you look at those kinds of things, I had one student bring this up to me one time. I thought it was a really good observation. He was saying, you know, so you've got these spots where marine Cretaceous deposits, okay, and you've got like a random dinosaur in it. And, you know, both evolutionists and creationists would say, yeah, this dinosaur floated out, you know, to what are typically kind of marine environments and, you know, died there and, or died there, got buried there. And that's cool. And like, that fits a flood model. I like that and everything. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, so that's a Campanian dinosaur and a Campanian marine deposit. And I was like, oh, I see where you're going with this. Like, why can we match up stuff on the land and stuff in the ocean? And when they do happen to coincide, they match up perfectly. And I was like, that is a really good point. And I don't know what to do with that, right? So there's things like that where, like I said, I think a lot of it's the stratigraphy and how the animals are changing with the layers or you know, what's interpreted as changing, but really why do you find the certain species or groups when you do in the certain layers? I think that's still a very large problem for creationism. Not insurmountable, but it's something that requires a lot of work and a lot of thought. Gotcha. So what would you say on the other hand? You know, what, what would you say that, well, creationists actually have a really good explanation for this, but evolutionists don't? Yeah. I think a big one would be, I think there'd be two big ones. One would be just the sudden appearance of lots of groups. It's a consistent mm, problem yeah. for evolution, right? You know, you just suddenly, oh, there's a stegosaur, you know, or, oh, hey, there's pachycephalosaurus. You got these groups that just pop up, you know, fully formed. Even though they'll hypothesize, oh, Scutellosaurus might be like a stegosaur, you know, ancestor or, you know, heterodontosaurids might be on the line leading to pachycephalosaurus. You really don't see that. It's just, okay, you're pulling a group here and you're trying to say maybe they're ancestors, maybe they're related, but it's not like you actually see a nice linking chain for that. So I, I think that's always consistently a problem. I guess I have three. The next one is dinosaur biogeography. Why do you find dinosaur groups on continents that you do when you do? And it's pretty much a mess. When you look at the Cenozoic and the mammals, it makes a lot of sense. You can match it up. You can figure out how this animal got to this point and when they got there and everything. When you're looking at dinosaurs, it's just kind of, well, sometimes they're over here and now they're over here. And I don't know what's, you know, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and so yeah. I think the third one would be just the fact that, you know, I don't want to go crazy with this or anything, but, you know, we do have stories about dragons and big reptiles in lots of cultures. And that is really interesting, right? And I have to think that's somehow related to dinosaurs or animals like them, right? Now, like I said, I'm not going to pinpoint you like, oh, St. George killed, you know, a baryonyx. No, I, I don't know if anything really happened with St. George, right? But, but the fact that every culture out there, just like every culture seems to have a flood legend, almost every culture seems to have stories about big reptilian animals, which is interesting, right? And I have to think yeah. at some level, yeah. there's something going on there, you know? Yeah, it's something that has to be dealt with that I don't really hear too much that comes out of the, you know, ev evolutionists. You know, I don't really hear great ideas for this sort of no. cultural stuff like that. So there, there's definitely... So, so two questions that, that come from that, if I can remember them both. The first, I was going to ask you, I, and this is more just a fun one for me, is I want to know your thoughts on behemoth and job do you think that's describing okay. a dinosaur and the other and you know yeah, whatever you think on that but then the other one is 
I kind of wanted to get maybe just a brief explanation as to on the other two that you mentioned, maybe why creation is a better explanation for those two things. Or maybe you were just saying that it's a hard thing for evolution. But I'd like to know if there's a, if there's a good answer to those things on creation, just briefly. Yeah, great, great point. Okay, so I guess we'll start. Let's start with the other questions because I'll forget everything okay. by the time we get to it, but I'll remember behemoth. Okay, so, okay. you know, with the sudden appearances, that would make perfect sense in a flood that, you know, you've got a fully right. formed ecosystem, boom, you're burying it, right? So, like, North America is right. an interesting place, right, where you've got, like, the Morrison Formation, all these Jurassic dinosaurs, Apatosaurus, Brachiosaurus, that kind of thing. And then you've got, like, a few scattered lower Cretaceous things, the Dakota Sandstone, stuff like that, Cedar Mountain Formation. And then suddenly, boom, you're in the Cretaceous. And you don't see like transitions between these formations. Oh, this animal, you know, these animals turn into these animals, these animals turn into these animals. No, it's just like completely different animals popped right on top, right? That's interesting. That's what I would expect with a flood that you'd like bury ecosystem after ecosystem and just pile them on top of each other. Yeah. Now, how does that process work? That gets back to what I say is one of the problems for the creation model. But the actual sudden and abrupt appearances and disappearances, that is the kind of thing I'd expect from a flood model. With the biogeography question, I think it is a problem for the evolutionary model because you've got over 100 million years of dinosaur evolution and dinosaurs occupying the earth and the continents moving. You should be able to figure these things out, I would think. But with the creation model, it would make sense that you know, an animal isn't buried necessarily where it lived. I doubt it's like completely on the opposite side of the earth. Oh, it's possible. But, you know, you can be have flood deposits moving these things around, you know, in in what Steve Austin loves to talk about, like the hyper concentrated flows, you know, the hydroplaning flows that, you know, yeah. might be moving these creatures and burying them somewhere where they're not from. And so you would expect to get some kind of confusion with the the depositional processes, whereas in the Cenozoic, if it's post-flood, I would expect to be able to watch and see where animals have kind of moved all over the earth and be able to track that. And so the evolutionists would expect there to be essentially no difference between those two, right? Other than one's more recent than the other. But in the creation model, I would predict a difference and I do see a difference. And so that's where I would say, you know, there's something substantial, meaningful there. Understood. Understood. Okay. That's very helpful. And so the Job question kind of ties into to your third thing yeah, there is yeah. that you, know, you do have lots of cultures around the world, right? Who seem to have, it's almost like they've had some encounters with creatures that are very much like what we would call a, a dinosaur. Like otherwise, where does the mythology of these things come from? So yeah, I'd love your thoughts yeah. on that. And I wouldn't say necessarily that all those cultures need to encounter dinosaurs themselves. They could be passing on cultural memories from even Noah's time, uh, right? Because they do that with the right, flood. Sure. So why can't they do that with other things? When, when you're talking about, you know, in Job, Behemoth and Leviathan, you know, we got to figure out, okay, what are these things, right? They're left untranslated on purpose because yeah. we don't know what these words are. And Behemoth only shows up in Job, but Leviathan shows up in some other passages like in Isaiah and Psalm 104 and a few other places. Correct, yeah. And, so, you know, the first thing got to answer is, okay, are these meant to be real animals or not, right? And so I'm going to exclude liberal scholarship entirely because I don't think it's really relevant to our discussion. But when you sure. look at like the conservative evangelical pos- positions on this, you know, 
you see really there's two main camps. There's the one that says they are real animals is the one that says they're not. So even in conservative camps, there are some people who say these are meant to be like uh, mythological depictions of other nations, like God talking about, you know, hey, just Egypt is sometimes pictured with Rahab as a serpent kind of thing in the water in the sure. Nile, uh, you know, or a Babylonian kind of stuff. Or that they are, uh, I don't know the right word is, symbols for Satan. Okay, so this you do see this in Isaiah, right, where Leviathan stands for Satan. And of course, the serpent and the dragon, like, those are used as symbols of Satan in other parts of Scripture. So that would be one position. The other one would be that these are genuinely real animals God is describing. So in favor of them not being real animals, um, the Leviathan does say it breathes fire. That's interesting. But the thing is, they're actually, if you read Job, right, God has this speech beginning in Job 38. And he's talking about the natural world for a very long time. Then there's this spot where for God switches to telling Job, hey, Job, you need to be a man of, of justice, an upright man. And then suddenly he starts talking about behemoth and Leviathan and wraps it up. So that's kind of weird, right? Like, why does he separate behemoth and Leviathan mm. out from other animals if they're meant to be real animals? Yeah, um, never thought about that. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And so I've heard, like one guy I really respect, he was saying, you know, I think, um, that behemoth is a symbol for justice. And I was like, no, I don't know. I'm sorry. Like, I <laughs> yeah, that's... How does like eating grass like an ox, what does that mean for justice? You know, how does that represent justice? So, yeah. you know, the thing yeah. is when, when you actually look at the text though and see how they're described, I can't help but think these are real animals, right? So behemoth, sure. like I said, he eats grass like an ox. He is he is an animal I created alongside you, God actually says, right? It's hard yeah. to get away from the idea that that's a real animal. Leviathan that's is right. even more convincing, in my opinion, because you have Psalm 104, right? Where Psalm 104, God, you know, the psalmist is describing all the wonderful works of God and how God sustains his creation, how he made it, how he sustains it, right? He talks about God providing food for the lions and touching the mountains and they smoke and all, all this amazing stuff, right? And right in the middle of Psalm 104, it says, that the ships go in the sea and Leviathan, which you made to, on your translation, play there, frolic there, whatever. Mm. That's a real animal, yeah. right? You're not talking yeah. about some kind of mythological entity. You're saying like, oh, right. there's, oh yeah, by the way, there's these animals that swim in the ocean. We call them Leviathan, right? So yeah, I think they're real animals. I think that's the best interpretation. So, so once you've, you know, we're thinking dichotomously here. Okay, we branched off real animal or not real animal. Throughout not real animal, so we're a real animal. What are our options then? So the traditional thinking for behemoth would be either it's an elephant or a hippopotamus. So neither of them are really good, you know, stand-ins for it. The elephant, it talks about the animal having a tail of a cedar. Elephants clearly do not have that. You could argue it's an elephant's right. trunk. Would they really use the same word? I don't think so. Plus, they don't, you know, it still doesn't really sway like a cedar tree, even the trunk. It's, you know, very crazy, kind of like a snake. So I don't think it's an elephant. Hippos clearly do not have tails like a cedar tree. <laughs> but there was a recent argument put forward actually by, by Robert Bacher, Bob Bacher, the paleontologist, who is a former evangelical. And he's a paleontologist. He's a really famous dinosaur paleontologist. I've co-authored yeah. some research with him before. But he's an evolutionist and... Um, you know, he says that the behemoth is clearly a hippo and that t the tail, like a cedar tree tail is actually a euphemism for the male reproductive organ. Okay. So 
ah. in hippos that is very large. And so the argument is that's what's going on. So I actually contacted one of our Bible professors here, Abner Chow, saw, yeah. sent one of the awkward emails in my life, you know, um, <laughs> and it was like, okay, tell me about this. I don't know Hebrew, right? And he said, you know, this is used as a euphemism in a very particular time period when scripture was not being written, mm. but we never find it ever used in scripture or in the time periods that scripture is actually being written. And especially if Job is as old as we believe it is, there's no evidence they were using it that way back then. So gotcha. I think, I don't think it's a good argument. I think it's probably meant to be a tail. So what animal are yeah. you left with? You know, a dinosaur is a good guess, right? It does yeah. have a tail. Lots of dinosaurs, you know, like sauropods or hadrosaurs or ceratopsians. There's lots of them. A lot of people were like, why don't they mention any of the other features? I don't know. You pick and choose, right? It's like, why aren't there pandas in I don't know. They just didn't bother mentioning them, you know? So, like, I think, I think it's a good guess, but I think it comes down to, this is what I always tell my students when they ask this. You shouldn't be dogmatic about this. Oh, the behemoth is definitely a dinosaur. You don't know. There could be other animals that God made that are extinct and we don't have a fossil record for them. And that could be what sure. you're talking about, right? And yeah. so I don't want to, I always want to be, one, one thing I always tell people, and I picked this up from a paleontologist actually, is that our job as scientists, and, and I think it applies to lots of other fields too, your job is to, to tell people what you know, what you think you know, what you don't know, and to clearly distinguish between those three things. And I, I yeah. think that's really what we should do. You can say, hey, I think a dinosaur is the best fit right now, but I'm open to the, the possibility I could be wrong, right? So yeah. you're Leviathan, same yeah. kind of, it looks like a marine reptile. I think you can say that. Is it a mosasaur? Is it a plesiosaur? Is it an ichthyosaur? <laughs> a nothosaur? A placodon? There's all, it could some kind of crocodilian. There's all kinds of things it could be, right? I don't know. And so yeah. I don't want, once again, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but I do want to say, you know, I think it's indicative of an animal that we don't have right anymore, you know? Yeah. And so I think it could be, and I think that's cool. And maybe further study could reveal something, but I just don't think you can be super dogmatic about it. Oh, I, you know, I love that. I love that response to that because I, and this leads so well into my next question that I want to go to here. And that is, so sometimes people will look at a verse like that and well, I think in general, there's this tendency towards apologetics in creation, which is fine. We yep. can use creation as a tool in our apologetics arsenal. That's totally cool. We should be, I think, doing that. But with something like that, it might be, you know, you could loosely say, well, yeah, this, you know, it, this is not rock solid evidence that Job, you know, was looking at a dinosaur or had knowledge right. of a dinosaur. But this is at least something that, is possible. So, so there's a possibility with it. However, I think in what we're doing with creation studies, especially now, we should be going beyond apologetics. You know, apologetics hmm. is great, but we need to be actually studying the natural world and coming up with our own conclusions. And so I really like what has, what has been called the model building, essentially, a, a, a approach where we're not just trying to answer evolutionists or we're not just trying to show where evolution is wrong, even though I think there's a time and a place for that. What we want to actually do is serve the greater creation science community and come up with some answers for some of these questions that are raised when we look at the natural world. And that's going to take a lot of work beyond what has been done right now. 
So I was just curious if there was a specific area of study that you're working in right now. So I actually saw one of your Facebook posts the other day and I cracked up because you were, you'd said something about talking to kids about dinosaurs and it was really, it's always really exciting (laughs) because kids love dinosaurs and, oh, it must be so cool to be a paleontologist. And then I forget exactly what you said, but it was something to the effect of a paper that you were reading about like dinosaur dung. And it was like, what a paleontologist, you know, actually does. And, And so, but it's those little things, those little, it's those, you know, you find nuggets and little bits of research that creationists and evolutionists have done that, that make you start scratching your head and say, oh, I wonder if there's a answer to this. And it's, it starts with those little things that help build up the creation model. So is there anything specifically you're working on now? Yeah. You know, before I say that, let me just say really quickly, you know, I think, I think creation apologetics does have a lot of value, but I think sometimes we take it the wrong way. And I think all of us have been guilty about this at all, who've been interested in creation stuff at all. But, you know, especially with these interactions I've had just recently out in Colorado, I've realized, I think a lot of it just comes down to people People use evolution as a crutch for not wanting to believe in God. I think that's what a lot of what it comes down to, right? Is I don't have to believe in God because science tell, you know, scientists say that you can be a smart person and not believe in God, right? And so I think a lot of it just comes down to showing people, hey, look, science does not tell you that, right? <laughs> that's a worldview that's being put in there. Yeah. But secondly, sure. creation is a it's not unreasonable, right? And I think that's really what it comes down to. And you see this with all of the apologetics stuff way back in like the, you know, second century, third century, that kind of thing, where they were saying like, you know, Christianity's not unreasonable. Like they're, you know, we're not crazy, essentially. You can't, you're, you're right. not going to there in a conversation and prove to somebody, yes, for sure, behemoth is a dinosaur, right? But what you can do is you can be like, you know, you have been told if you don't believe these things, or if you do believe these things, you're crazy, right? Let me show you that's not actually the case, right? Because I, so I think good. it's about yeah. kind of like taking out some of those hurdles. That's where I think apologetics should be. So anyway, back to what your actual question was, um, you know, in terms of research. So I'm always doing tons of different research projects. There's all these memes that go around among scientists where they're like, you know, the research project you're currently working on versus a new research project. And I'm like, oh, I want that one. That's very much how it goes. But I think from the creation perspective, there's kind of two big areas that I've been kind of dabbling in and doing things. And one of them has been related to feathered dinosaurs. And then the other one has been with therapsids, which are the, what they used to call the mammal-like reptiles, went to the transition between more reptile-like animals to true mammals. And so, like, for instance, the Facebook post you were talking about was referring to the stuff I'm doing with therapsids, that they have this, like, giant site with tons and tons of, of fossil poop from a dicynodont. And it's like, wow, this is something, isn't it? And so, yeah. But that's, those are kind of the two big areas that I've been doing stuff. Yeah, very good. That one talk I was watching was you were talking about the therapsids, and I thought that was really fascinating. Mental note, I'll go back and I'll link that below for anyone who's interested. It was a really fascinating talk. And, uh, and actually, I haven't even finished it yet, but I've got through most of it. And uh, so that that's cool. I love that. And then 
The feathered dinosaurs. Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned it. Let's just go there. This probably okay. has to be the one thing that you are, I, I want to say infamous for. I don't know, because you have a different opinion on feathered dinosaurs than I think many creationists have in the past. Yeah. And so agree or disagree okay whatever but i would love for you to just lay out a little bit of your case for feathered dinosaurs i mean you think that there were feathered dinosaurs and you think that these are one of those things that creationists just kind of have to deal with instead of ignoring it or hiding it or you know whatever so i'd like to hear about that a little bit yeah i can preface it just by saying when i was an undergrad kind of starting into this stuff i said you know there's certain things i'm just not going to work on when i'm a paleontologist one of them is anything with T-Rex because it's so overdone. And, and then, of course, one of my publications is about T-Rex, several of them, actually. And then <laughs> Feathered Dinosaurs, the other one, I'm like, I'm just going to stay away from it because it's not, it's honestly, it was like, I was, at the time I was like, it's not even that interesting to me. And yeah. then that's what I ended up working on. So, and of course, my big thing, what I always want to do are pterosaurs. I never get to work on pterosaurs, but that's my, my big area of interest. But when it comes to the Feathered Dinosaur thing, you know, Essentially, the, the way this kind of played out when you're thinking about history is they found Archaeopteryx in the 1860s, okay? This really interesting fossil in 1870s, too, a little bit later on. This creature that looks like a bird, but it has what looked like parts of a dinosaur, too. And so they really had nothing else to go off of for, like, over 100 years, essentially. And so people just argued about Archaeopteryx back and forth for a very long time. And it seemed really unique, right? Just absolutely this unusual creature no one had ever seen before. And then, you know, people in the 1960s and 70s with John Ostrom and Bob Bacher and other people like that, they started arguing for birds being descendants of dinosaurs more strongly again, because that had kind of fallen out of favor in the early 1900s. And so they started pushing it again. And of course, creationists are going to push back to that, right? I mean, that makes sense. We don't believe that birds evolved from dinosaurs, from land animals. I definitely don't believe that. The Bible's very clear that God created different kinds of birds on day five. That's one of the few groups you can point to and be like, yeah, the Bible says it, right? And so, you know, when you're thinking about that, um, it makes sense then to argue against anything that looks like that, right? And so I think that's kind of the approach that's been taken is like, hey, you know, you've got, you know, you're not going to find feathers on dinosaurs. In the 1990s and the early 2000s roll around, they find all these interesting fossils in China, right? Sinoceropteryx, Sinornithosaurus, Microraptor, all these things. And they look like dinosaurs with feathers on them. So what are you going to do with yeah. that? And I think the gut response we have immediately is to be like, okay, there's no way there's a dinosaur with feathers because birds have feathers. And to say a dinosaur has feathers means it's evolving into a bird. That's kind of the approach people took. Yeah. And sure. so, you know, what we wanted to do now that there's, it's been, what, 20, 30 years since that. And we have tons and tons of fossils of supposedly feathered dinosaurs now. But things like Anchiornis, there's like over 100 specimens of just Anchiornis, right? So there's tons mm-hmm. of these things. And they're not just from China. They're from North America. They're from Europe. They're from all over the place. We wanted to sit down and really look at this and try and figure out, okay, what's actually going on here, right? So instead of just automatically saying, well, I don't want this to be the case, let's say, well, well, let's look at the fossils and try and get it, right? 
And so I, with my colleagues, you know, we did a lot of work on this. It's like the longest paper I've ever written, for sure. Most figures are put in a paper is absurd because we want to do barominology to so figure out created kinds and things. And it just mm-hmm. took tons of the time. And this is how the International Conference on Creationism, they, you know, you submit your proposal like a year or two in advance, and then you have to write the entire paper before you present it. So, you know, and it goes through peer review and everything like that. So we had a lot of work cut out for us. And originally the paper was going to be even bigger. And we had to chop off a whole bunch of stuff about you know, dinosaur and bird brains and lungs and hearts and legs. And we had all kinds of things we were going to tackle. We're like, no, no, chop it down. So it essentially came down to three things. Let's survey the feathered dinosaur fossil record, find out are these legit, right? Number two is let's do barominology on these things and figure out, can you clearly distinguish a bird, a dinosaur? And then third was, what do we do with this, right? How do we actually think about this philosophically and theologically? So what we found is, yeah, there's lots of fossils of animals that we have traditionally called dinosaurs that have feathers or some other kind of feather-like integument all over them. And it really comes down to, are you just going to say what's there or not? You know, and that's what we found. Mm. And there's people who disagree with us. And listen, I am not going to religiously, you know, be dogmatic and say, you must agree with me. Right. You know, obviously you can hold your own positions and you can do your own research. And that's what we always believe in science. But I think it would be very hard to convince me now that these things are not dinosaurs with feathers on them. So, you know, it's not just, once again, it's not just Archaeopteryx and a few other things that everybody thinks. And we're talking about um, hundreds of specimens from over 50 different species, right? And not even just species, but what? There's at least seven or seven to 11 different families of dinosaurs that have members that have feathery-like things in them. Some of them, it's complete true feathers. Some of them, it's this downy feather kind of stuff. Some of them, it's just little fibers. But you've got something, right? And so you got to deal with that. And so we came out and we just said, look, we think these are legit. And we think that, they're, that these are, there are some dinosaurs that had feathers on them. We did the yeah. barominology and we found, okay, there are clearly different kinds of feathered dinosaurs. So they don't all share a common ancestor. And there are different kinds of birds. We already know from scripture anyway, and other biological studies. So when you put all that together, no, there's not a clear evolutionary link between dinosaurs and birds. Nevertheless, you can see morphological intermediates, things like Archaeopteryx, right? That look like they're in between a dinosaur and a bird. So what do you do with that? And that's where we went in our philosophical and theological kind of discussion about, you know, classification and how do you think about these things? And really what it comes down to is, I think a lot of this is, and I want to be really careful as this, because some people misinterpret what I mean. I think it's kind of like uniformitarianism. Okay. So in uniformitarianism, the whole idea in geology is you say the present is the key to the past, right? So if I want to understand the past, I look at the present and I look at how rocks change and how sediments are deposited and eroded. And then I extrapolate that backwards. And that's the only thing I use to interpret that. Okay. Yeah. I think as creationists, obviously we're opposed to that completely because we know that's anti-global flood, anti-creationism. But we can sometimes fall into that kind of thinking when it comes to biology. So we look at the animals we have today and we're like, these kinds of animals are the only kinds of animals that can exist. Okay. If an animal has feathers, it must be, it must have all the other qualifications of a bird. Right. And then we discover these things and we're like, oh, wait a minute. 
this, I can't quite call it a bird and I can't quite call it a reptile either. Well, that's because we designed the categories, bird, reptile, mammal, those kinds of things, given our modern animals. If we had all the animals that have ever lived right in front of us, when we started making these categories, we probably wouldn't have drawn the boundaries that we do, right? We probably would have mm. all kinds of other categories that would have been similar, but there would have been a lot of differences. And you see this with all kinds of animals, like the therapsids I talked about, or tiktolic and the fish-like amphibians or amphibian-like fishes, you know, the, they don't quite fit into categories. And so our temptation is to shove them into those categories, to shoehorn them in and say, no, it's got to be either a bird or it's a reptile. You got to decide. But even just looking at reptiles, the types of reptiles today, right? There's only, what, there's five basic types. We have crocodilians, turtles, snakes, lizards, and tuatara. That's it. When you look at the fossil record of reptiles, you're talking about 50, 70 different types, maybe more, mm -hmm. right? And some of them could fly. Some of them were the size of whales in the ocean. Some of them were the size of whales on land. Like you can't look at a lizard or a crocodile and be like, oh yeah, that's what that thing was like. No, that's a completely yeah. alien life form, right? That's so different than what we're used to. And so if you use reptile, the way you think of reptile today, cold-blooded, sluggish, scaly, all this kind of stuff, and you say anything that skeletally looks like these must also have all these features, you're going to be completely wrong because you're dealing with wow. things so wildly different, right? And this is in every category animals. And so that's kind of where we landed as we said, look, a lot of this just comes down to confusion on classification and some philosophical assumptions we made that weren't necessarily warranted. They weren't bad assumptions, but it's just over time we've realized that they turned out to be wrong and that's okay. And actually, I think that this is better in the long run for creationism because you're getting a deeper appreciation of the design pattern of God and the glory of God that he reveals through these things that you wouldn't otherwise know. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely sort of that modern scientific bias going on there. And I look at it as more of shifting between a problem to an opportunity. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. whereas in the past we saw, we look, oh, we have a feathered dinosaur, so now we have a problem. Well, you know, why can't we just, and I'll mention this book again, Todd Wood's book, The Quest, which is yeah. such a, a good book for me to read because, especially on issues like this, because it's like, we, we already have, and I think Kurt Wise's Faith, Form, and Time talked about this a little bit as well, but it's like, we already know, like, we have the truth. Yeah. You know, God has revealed the truth to us. So what are we stressing about, right? It's, yep. we now have an opportunity to see how, you know, God was glorified in his creating a dinosaur that has feathers. Like we, we can, you know, we have opportunity for discovery now in something that we didn't think we had before. And if we get it figured out, we might just get to kick an evolutionist in the butt at the same time, right? It just looks, it's just, it's a win all around, you know? So yeah. You know, I love that. I think that's a great perspective. I've got two more questions for you before we kind of close out here. And the first of those is really just something that I'm passionate about. I heard Dr. Bill Barrett say one yeah. time that, you know, a lot of times we think in terms of science only when it comes to, you know, looking at the Genesis account. And he would, the context where he was talking about it is he was saying sometimes creationists actually get accused of this from, um, you know, even other Christian creationist camps who aren't young earth creationists, we get accused of saying, well, we're robbing God 
of what he was trying to communicate theologically because we're right. just making it scientific. And what Dr. Barrick was saying is, you know, they kind of have a point there. Sometimes we mm. do just think really only about the science. So I'm just curious for you personally, if there's anything that your study of dinosaurs has taught you more about God or helped you theologically yeah. or anything. No, I definitely can say it has. I think this is one of the things I always stress in my class, especially my gen ed class, you know, where I'm getting a lot of non-science students and I try and help them to see that, you know, God's glory is on display everywhere you go, right? And really your goal, one of your goals, I think, as a Christian is to see the glory of God everywhere, right? And the people you interact with and the things that he's made, not just, you know, in the word. The word is obviously our primary source of information about God, but just, you know, people use this analogy all the time, but just like a master painter or an author or something, you know, God's creations speak of him, right? Um, they show us about him. We need the word to help us rightly interpret what we're seeing, because otherwise we might start thinking that God, you know, enjoys parasitism and disease and things like that. But, you know, when we look at nature, though, we do see God's glory and his attributes on display. You know, when I think about, and I tell my students every time I dig up a fossil, it's exciting to me because I'm seeing something, right, that shows the glory of God that nobody has seen, right? And then I get to go and expose this glory of God to other people and show them. And it's, wow, it's, that's something unique. That's something special that God laid out for us to find and to see about him. You know, so when we've been working on the therapsids and on feathered dinosaurs and other things like that, you know, one of the things we've been really struck with is understanding his design patterns and getting a deeper kind of look at it's i think we often think really simplistically about this and it's really sad that we look at it and we just say oh yeah god made different kinds of stuff and the story right and it's like no that's not the end of the story that's the beginning of the story when you start looking deeply at what is inside animals and how they're all linked together and how you can even notice similarities between animals and plants and animals and plants in the non-living world and you realize how intertwined everything is there's a an immense amount of of forethought that went into this, like a lot more than we give it credit for. That God, as he was developing his different creatures, he was working from blueprints. He was thinking all this out. He was piecing this together. And then he was thinking about how those things would change even after he made them. That's a really profound thought about that God pre-programmed creatures to be able to change in this world, right? And that's a level of design we can't even comprehend as humans, right? We're amazed that we, you know, we can make a computer and it's, but can you make a computer that makes other computers and a computer that improves itself or, or not necessarily improves itself, but just diversifies over time, changes into other kinds of things and fills niches. No, we don't do anything like that. That's just sure. extraordinary, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. Th those kinds of things have been things that have really struck me and that I've tried to impress upon students and people I meet with, you know, of just how incredible the design God built into nature really is. Yeah, I never really thought about the uh, the idea of being like like digging up a fossil and being the first person to lay eyes on a, a creation of God. Essentially, you know, the last if somebody saw it, you know, uh, four thousand or so unlikely, years right? ago. Yeah, right. That's wow. It's absolutely yeah. Insane. Would have been inside I, the I, animal, you know. <laughs> it's unlikely right. to see that, but whatever. 
Yeah, exactly. So I, uh, I, yeah, that just gives me chills to think about. So I have a tendency, I'm learning about myself when I interview folks. I have a tendency to ask my very last question that I ask before moving into closing things out tends to be one that could be a whole separate podcast. So I apologize for that. But I would like to know. So when I first started getting into creation stuff, this was probably, I don't know, five, six years ago now, something like that was when I first started to realize this. And I started to hear a lot of talk about the flood. And, you know, it's really something that I gave any major thought to before. It's okay. It takes up, you know, three chapters or so in the Bible. And okay, well, this is a pretty significant event, I guess, but you don't really hear much about it. And then when I started to get into creation learning, I heard people talk about it all the time. And I'm like, what is the big deal with this? And so it turns out that especially in the areas of study that you are in, the flood actually has a lot to do with earth history and with just gosh so much even in terms of like explanations for the biodiversity that we see in the world today like so much of creation research goes back to what happened at the at the flood and as an extension of that so much creation research tends to happen at the grand canyon because it happens to be a place where we can sort of see very easily and access and have research. So what I want to know from you is just kind of give an explanation. Maybe think about the person who's just like, well, who cares about the flood? I can't like, why does the flood matter? Yeah. Maybe think about that person. What is that? What is the flood? What significance does that have for your research of dinosaurs? Yeah. I mean, you've got to think about the flood as an earth resetting event. So we know it's an earth judgment event, right? Good. But yeah. the world before and after the flood are completely different. Obviously, it's the same planet, has the same core and stuff like that. But the Earth's surface would be absolutely different. You've got plate tectonics happening during the flood. The continental arrangement's not the same before and after. The mountains aren't the same before and after. The rivers aren't the same, same before and after. Everything's different, right? And even the animals, because even though you would have animals in the pre-flood world, the proportions of kind of who's in charge, who covers the most land, what the ecosystems are, all those things are going to change in the post-flood world, right? So... The example I always use with this actually came from Bob Bakker also, because he would challenge me on, why don't you find frogs in the Carboniferous? As he's saying, frogs love swampy environments. The Carboniferous is tons of swampy environments, full of amphibians, right? And yet you can't find any frogs anywhere. And I thought about that for a while, and I was like, well, this is the same problem we were just talking about with feathered dinosaurs. You're looking at the world today, and you're saying, there's tons of frogs, right? There's more living species of frogs than there are mammals. That's insane, right? There's tons of frogs, okay? but they're all frogs, right? And they're in all these different environments all over the earth. You're looking at a post-disaster world and trying to extrapolate what a pre-disaster world was like, right? And you're saying, well, oh, there's frogs everywhere today, so there must be frogs everywhere in the past. Well, no, right? Before there used to be dozens of types of amphibians, right? With all their own species, a few of those, you know, all those types, those kinds got preserved in the ark, right? They got off and then it's blow the whistle, go right? Whoever can take over the earth, go for it. Okay. Frogs do exceptionally well. Other amphibians don't do so well. So when you're thinking about dinosaurs, I think they fall into that latter category. I think they just didn't do well in our new world. And there could be all kinds of reasons for that. It could be related to climate and an ecosystem. You know, certainly a lot of our herbivorous dinosaurs, a lot of them relied 
on cycads and cycadioids and plants like that that are just nowhere near as numerous ginkgos, things like that. So, you know, you, you lose a lot of your sauropods and stegosaurs and things that way. You know, when you're thinking about, and then of course the animals that eat those and the, with food chain, but even things like reproduction where yes, dinosaurs are laying a lot of eggs, but many dinosaur species are probably taking a long time to get to sexual maturity, right? Kind of like a lot of mammals today, a lot of the bigger mammals, they might be outcompeted. They might just not be able to make it. And so the flood then not only drastically changes our world, but it changes our world for dinosaurs too, because the flood gives us a glimpse at the pre-flood world, right? That it was a dinosaur heyday. They were just everywhere. They were big. They owned the place, okay? And after the flood, we really see this world of, of dinosaurs just not being there, not really being part of it, and mammals taking those places, and birds too. And so at the end of the day, what it, what it comes down to is the flood is the event, I think, that really triggers their disappearance and that change of fauna. And so, you know, when we're looking at dinosaur deposits, whether they're Triassic, Jurassic, or Cretaceous, we're looking at flood deposit stuff, most likely. And that's always got to be in the back of my mind when I'm digging up dinosaurs is trying to think through how does this fit in the bigger picture of the flood? Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, man, our time here has just uh, flown by. We're a little over an hour now. So I want to start wrapping up. Thank you again, man. We appreciate you, you yeah. coming on and t talking through. I'm sure it's uh, no problem for you to talk about dinosaurs for an hour. So <laughs> yeah, fun, fun stuff. So for those who'd be listening, I'm kind of curious, you know, opportunities for research. Are we just, is every creationist research position filled up? We don't need any more <laughs> or could, you know, could we actually, of course, I'm being a little facetious here. What would you say to somebody who's interested in pursuing this stuff? I would say pursue it. I would say if that's something God is laying on your heart, then you need to go for that. And we want to be here to help that happen for you, make that happen. So, you know, there are yeah. creationist science positions. Let me say it this way. There's lots of creationist science research to be done, right? I don't know what the positions are going to look like when you're, you know, when you're ready to go to, you know, get a job. I have no idea, right? I don't know the future. Sure. But what I can tell you is we need more creationist researchers. I can count the number of creationist paleontologists with PhDs on my hand, right? There are not very many. We don't have that many, you know, there's lots of fields that we just, we don't really have anybody, right? There's very few wow. creationist paleobotanists or people working on biostratigraphy or even other fields, right? Archaeology, for instance, or astronomy, or, you know, there's just, there's all kinds of fields that are just wide open for creationist research. And so what's really cool about going into creationist research is there's so much to study, right? My problem is typically like saying no to things because there's just so many things mm. to go look at. And anything that's already been looked at by evolutionists, we get to look at it again, right? So like we literally have all the things to look at. And that's wow. exciting, but it can feel very overwhelming too. And so we do want more people coming up and studying those things. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, yeah, I'll just second that. I, you know, I was not given the gift of being extremely, you know, analytical and I consider myself to have, you know, basic intelligence, but I'm more of a popularizer. So I, I'm somebody who just, you know, I'm passionate about seeing more people get into this as well. And that's what we're trying to do here is exposed to people doing this work and, you know, let them 
you know, let the world see what's going on, you know, on a week to week, month to month basis. So in light of that, what is the best way to follow you to keep up with any research that, that you're doing? I'm sure that the International Conference on Creationism, maybe talk about that a little bit. And then yeah. are there other things like that we can follow to keep up with the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let me mention a few things. So number one is there are some creation scientific organizations where they are presenting research at conferences and you can go to those. So every summer we have what's called the Origins Conference, and that is the meeting of the Creation Biology Society, Creation Geology Society, and Creation Theology Society. And we are allowing people to attend those virtually as well as go in person. And so if that's something that you're interested in, you know, I can give you the link and you can put that maybe in the show notes or something. But it's a really cool opportunity, especially if you're interested in going into science to actually see and talk with real scientists who are creationists, right? So it's not like a, not that there's anything wrong with this, but it's not like the kind of presentation you'd get at church, right? It's the kind of presentation when you'd go to a scientific meeting that you would hear about someone presenting sure. the research. So that's a great way to keep up with it. Another one would be, like you mentioned, the International Conference on Creationism. That only happens usually every three to five years. So the next one is in 2023. But it's going to be at Cedarville, Ohio, and you can find more information about that. But one of the biggest things is staying in touch with what I would say is the new creation blog, which is a new blog that's been out for about a year or so. And it's basically run by students, grad students and undergrad students who are creationists and who are trying to take the research and thinking that we scientists are doing and they're, you know, writing it up for lay people to understand. So it's really cool. I love the idea. I've contributed a few things there, but honestly, I'm way too busy to do a lot with that. Yeah. But that kind of helps you keep up with what's going on in creation science. And of course, Answers in Genesis and ICR and a lot of, you know, CMI, a lot of those ministries, they've got great stuff. And then in terms of keeping up specifically with me, I think the easiest thing would be just to stay in touch with the master's university. and. You know, we're actually working on creating some content that would be available to people who aren't students, but just are interested in creationist stuff. And so keep your ears open for that. There's some books kind of in the works too, which I can't say much about those, mainly just because I don't want to disappoint people if they don't happen. That's <laughs> right. If I, I say it, that's awesome. something that's going to happen, then I have no choice but to do it. Right. So, but. I know there are some things in the work where we are thinking about, you know, people like that. And so, you know, you mentioned Todd Wood's stuff was great. And Todd and I interact a lot as well as the you know, Cornerstone Educational Supply with Marcus Ross is always fantastic too. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of always really cool things happening and, you know, they can always contact me. I'm not that hard to find. So, you know, I'm always open to, you know, somebody just wants to talk about dinosaurs or creationism. Let me know. Beautiful, beautiful, awesome. Well, uh, feel free. I'm going to uh, end the broadcast here in a few minutes, but hang out with me for just a minute, if you will. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in and watching. This has been really exciting, and uh, I love getting to talk to people who are really out there in the trenches. Maybe I can uh, go on a dinosaur dig or something one of these days with you. That would just be super exciting for me. So, all right. Thank you guys so much for listening, and. Uh, We'll see you in the next one.